재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Well, the United Nations has dispatched a record number of peacekeepers to Africa in recent years. However, the Blue Helmets have been unsuccessful in preventing renewed spasms of violence, often finding themselves outmanned, outgunned, and hampered by a weak mandate. To tell us more about the situation and possible ways for the UN to strengthen its capacity in providing peace and stability, very pleased to have joining us senior lecturer at Birmingham Law School, Dr. Rosa Friedman. Hello. Hello there. Well, thank you so much for joining us. First, uh, how many UN peacekeeping operations are currently underway worldwide, and what is your general assessment of their level of success or lack thereof? There are currently 16 peacekeeping operations worldwide, and it's very difficult to measure the level of success across the board. Essentially, each peacekeeping operation has its own mandate. Um, Some of them are post-conflict building. Some of them are in early stages of uh, peacekeeping or or peacebuilding. What we do see is that generally these are very well needed, very much needed operations. But within each one, there are some systematic failures that undermine their legitimacy and their credibility. So they're all kind of individual and and unique circumstances as to whether they are succeeding or not. Generally, though, what are some of the biggest obstacles or limitations and problems that face the UN as well as these peacekeepers in preventing them from conducting successful operations? Well, at the most basic level, um, we see the problem of states not allowing UN peacekeepers in. So in 2009 in Sri Lanka, the slaughter of the Tamils occurred because Sri Lanka would not allow UN peacekeepers into the country. Where UN peacekeepers are allowed in, sometimes countries will insist that they are hybrid mandates, that they are joined by African Union peacekeepers, which again affects the ability of those UN peacekeepers to fulfill their own mandate. And then we have the biggest problem, I think, which is that UN peacekeepers are not able to go out and and fulfill their mandate as one unit. They are under their their own country's military structures, Mm. and each set of troops will be given national military orders. So you'll have some troops that are willing to go 100 miles from base in order to peace build, and other troops that have been told not to go more than 10 miles from base. So they're not acting as one solid unit in, in fulfilling their work. Right, and as most people know, uh, by definition, these are peacekeepers. These are not combat forces. This is probably uh, a naive question, Dr. Friedman, but would it be possible for the United Nations to have their own standing army free from uh, what you just described with their own uh, national uh, interests uh, and, and have a greater mandate to intervene directly in these various crisis areas? It's not a naive question at all. Um, The UN founders envisaged that there would be a standing army and that countries that were members of the United Nations would only be countries that love peace. It wasn't necessarily going to be open to all the world to join and that they would contribute some of their troops for, for this standing army. That never happened because politically, particularly in the Cold War, but even today with global complexities, Countries are not willing to release their own troops to be under a UN structure. And that's where the problem with peacekeeping begins. The UN founders did not see uh, a role for peacekeepers. They saw a role for a standing army. And yet these peacekeepers are hampered by by the laws governing peacekeeping, but also by their own national militaries, and yet expected to fulfill the role of an army. 
for our listeners here in South Korea, obviously uh, the United Nations uh, and the role they played in the Korean War is something that most people know. Uh, it is something that is uh, honored every year uh, in the anniversary of the Korean War. Are you hopeful that the United Nations will be able to have uh, the ability to take decisive action like it did during the Korean War, which is now, I, I suppose, over half a century ago? Absolutely. I think that the, the difference is today um, between sort of uh, global political complexities does not stop the UN from taking decisive action. What the UN did in, in Ukraine by sending in human rights monitors um, into the Crimea averted what would have been a massive war. That was a decision taken by senior staff members within the UN human rights bodies, uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And what we see these days is that either prevention work in that way or post-conflict building to stop further conflicts, like the UN did in Kosovo, those are the ways in which it is now able to take decisive action because there simply isn't the political willpower that there was during the Korean War mm. for most UN member states to get together and agree to take decisive action during a conflict. Right, and certainly it is a difficult... Uh... I suppose, logistical situation uh, and uh, for the United Nations to have a, I suppose, direct effect in places like Syria, for example, and we have the U.S. with their bombing campaigns and this so-called coalition uh, as ter in terms of that civil war going on there and this battle against ISIS. But as far as the U.N. is concerned, are there any aspects in a situation like Syria, for example, where they do provide some kind of unique value that no other nation can provide? Well, of course, because what the, what the UN does when it goes anywhere, whether it's with blue helmets as peacekeepers, whether it's through its humanitarian assistance, it takes with it a global mandate. It takes with it the will of most, if not all, member states in the world. And what we see in terms of um, assistance for refugees, what we see in terms of humanitarian corridors, in terms of food supplies and health care, should not, be, should not be shunted to one side of peacekeeping. This is all part of helping to deal with conflict. The problem is that the UN cannot intervene in Syria without having the agreement of, of all or most member states. So what we see is that we have to rely on other aspects of, of its agencies in order to gain, to gain some humanitarian assistance uh, to, to the most vulnerable people within that situation. And finally, as uh, most of our listeners and myself included, we're not as uh, well aware and expert in the intricacies of what the UN is trying to do with the peacekeepers. And we may know some of the flashy headlines of the past, like the horrific sex scandals involving peacekeepers. In your mind, though, overall, what changes and reforms do you believe are needed to enable these peacekeepers to have a, a better ability to prevent conflict situations and provide adequate protection to the civilians who need it there? I think you've hit the nail on the head. The legitimacy and credibility of UN peacekeeping generally is at a woeful low. What we see time and again are scandals to do with rape of women and children, to do with child prostitution, financial corruption, many deaths caused by drink driving, and, and, and what we also see is that peacekeepers are not held accountable for those actions. With that weakened legitimacy and weakened credibility, UN peacekeepers are viewed fearfully by local people on the ground and also are viewed fearfully by member states who say, why should we allow a UN peacekeeping force in? They may well do more damage than good. Right. 
And I think that in order to address that, we need to look at the very top of the UN. Until the UN Secretary General and until his staff accept that there are key problems with holding people accountable, until they accept that there has to be justice for victims, whether they are victims of rape or whether they are victims of cholera in Haiti, until those changes are made at the very top, they will not filter down into individual missions. And those missions will therefore suffer because their credibility and legitimacy are weakened. Certainly a lot to think about there for us. Uh, Dr. Friedman, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate your expertise. Great to talk to you. Senior lecturer from Birmingham Law School, Dr. Rosa Friedman. We've got Seoul City News up next.